0: Promises are like babies. They're easy to make, they're hard to deliver. Napoleon, the great general, said that the best way to keep your word is never to give it. Uh, There was a British rock group famous in the 80s. I think only Doug will know who they are. They were called Naked Eyes. They sang a song, said, promises, promises, you made me promises, knowing I'd believe promises, promises, you knew you'd never keep. What is it about our world that we know across our cultures and nations, promises are those things that we often think are meant to be broken Promises are necessary to have a relationship with each other. Certainly promises are necessary in an economy. We have to rely on promises. Promises are also those things that people hire very expensive lawyers to ensure that you have an incentive to keep. Whose promises can you trust and rely on? Whose word is good enough for you to build your entire life upon it what about God does God keep his promises we will answer that question by considering a very pivotal moment in the history of God's people together this morning from Isaiah chapter 40 Isaiah 40 you will want your copy of the scriptures open as we work through this passage. As we come to this passage, the people of God were at a place in their own history where they wondered, is our God a God who makes promises he cannot keep? They knew their past. They had been delivered in mighty and public way from the Egyptians. They are now in exile. They're in under the superpower of the world once again. And they're there because they no longer believed that their God would keep his word. They did not live faithfully under the good word their God had had given. And they came to this moment with big questions for God. Maybe you have questions for God this morning. Does God make promises He cannot keep. Does he know about the circumstances of my life? Does he know my situation? Yet from this chapter, we're going to see that God does not forsake his people. He keeps his promises. His people are in a desperate situation, and yet once again into their desperate situation, God speaks, making promises, giving his people His very sure word. Isaiah chapter 40. I want you to see this main point. The God who rules everything. Gives his word of promise. To sustain his people. The God who rules everything. Gives his word of promise. To sustain his people. And the first point I want you to see from this chapter is the God whose word brings comfort. The God whose word brings comfort. Verses 1 through 11. I wonder if you remember what it was like when you were growing up, when you had done something really, really wrong. That might have been your experience this week, one of the kids here. And you weren't sure what your parent was going to say to you next. You just knew you were in big trouble. This is precisely where the nation of Israel is when we come to this chapter. Isaiah is speaking to the future exiles, and he's speaking in the present to God's people who are not yet, but will live under Babylonian rule. And they had rejected God's word, and now God speaks. Look at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's a word of grace. God gives to his people... Who should have known his judgment, grace. And so for his exiled people, judgment will not be the final word. I want you to see from this the commitment of God to his people. They've sinned in unbelief, but God remains committed to his own. He he speaks tenderly to his people. They're no longer physically in Jerusalem. But as the text makes clear, they are still Jerusalem. He wants them to know that though you are an exiled people, that you're away from the land of promise, I am committed to you. What's more, God promises her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, that just simply means, as one writer noted, punishment had been accepted for her iniquity. The prophet Isaiah never compromises God's holiness by minimizing man's sin. Isaiah, in this book, will go on to develop, in later chapters, a servant who will mysteriously come into history and atone For the sin of his people. What God is showing is he is committed to displaying grace. And what's the proof? God makes the provision to atone for sin. It's all of grace. This is God's way. We can't atone for ourselves. Here is God meeting his people in their exile, in their need, not with a word of judgment. With the word of grace. Grace. I want you to see maybe afresh or for the first time, how gracious God is. His grace would be cheap if somehow it, he treated us as if we really don't need grace, as if we're, we're okay. We just need a little help, a little good advice. That's not the picture here. Isaiah is displaying God's grace as something utterly realistic and incomparable because it's being given to people who are really unclean, who know they have failed God. God's grace powerfully comes to this people who know they need grace. That's what God is giving here. Real grace for real sin. Now in a room like this, I have to imagine some of you have have wrestled with what Christianity teaches. Is this just a bunch of rules? A religion with a path to make you better? That's not what Christianity is at all. That's very good news. The Bible does not Fundamentally, teach that you need to be made better. It teaches you need to be made new. That's why Jesus came into the world by his life and his death and his, his resurrection to make sinners new. So by forsaking any trust you're putting in yourself or your, your works and looking to Jesus Christ and the remarkable grace that he brings and, and purchase with his life, you spiritually can be made a new creation by repenting, by trusting in Jesus, his life, his death, on the cross. You can know for certain that in the words of Isaiah, your sin has been paid for. My friend, Jesus dealt with real wrongdoing on the cross. And if you know that you're a wrongdoer, Turn to Jesus. His grace will cover even that sin. Believe him. Here's God's people in exile. But is God done with his people? No. To their surprise, God is going to come to his people. Look down at verse 3. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. As you work your way through the Old Testament, what becomes very clear is that Preparation must be made for the appearance of God. Verse 3 here is quoted by all four of the Gospels. John the Baptist uses this very text to prepare God's people for the ultimate appearance of God in Jesus Christ. Although his people are in the wilderness, although they're in the desert, God visits his people Here is the God who will not stop identifying with the messiness and the mess of his people. He's coming to meet his people. And Isaiah makes use of every type of terrain on the earth there in verse 4 to make this point that the world will be transformed. The world will be made ready for the coming of the king and the display of his glory. And it's not going to be a small event. In his coming, his glory will be revealed. It will not be hidden. It will not be veiled as it is to so many in the world now. What does Isaiah make clear? On that day, all mankind together will see it. In his gospel, Luke takes this very verse. He shows John the Baptist saying, All flesh shall see the salvation of God. We live in a world that is happy just to conveniently ignore the true God. But doesn't it comfort you to know for certain God will not be conveniently ignored forever. This will be an unmistakable, visible demonstration of God's glory. All mankind, all flesh will see his glory. And the glory of the Lord is Jesus. The glory of the Lord was undisplayed in the crucified Messiah as he turned the wisdom and the strength of this world on its head. And yet his glory will ultimately be revealed when Jesus comes again to show the world he is the world's true king. The king in his beauty and all flesh, not just the remnant, will see it. And he will vindicate his own before the world. Isaiah is promising God's marginalized, dominated people. God is going to move in a spectacular way on the world stage. Exile will not be the end of your story. It will not be the end of your story either. If you're a Christian, your hope in God will not prove To be a loss. Brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ, God is for us. The glory He reveals to the world will be ours to share with our Savior. Here we know suffering in this life, there we will know irreversible glory and joy. Listen to what Thomas Watson, a Puritan pastor, wrote. If we are in covenant with God and He says to us, You are mine then all that is in God is ours. My wisdom shall be yours to teach you. My holiness shall be yours to sanctify you. My mercy shall be yours to save you. God is a whole ocean of blessedness. If there is enough in him to fill the angels, then surely he has enough to fill us. There is nothing good God withholds from his children. Now, what is the guarantee for this promise? Isaiah is making. He simply says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The guarantee is that God has issued his word and that is enough. What God declares in heaven comes to pass on earth always. Every time he has spoken, he will do it. So far from being a a future of hopelessness, the the future for the people of God, for you, is, is glorious, and God guarantees it by himself. And this word, which brings comfort, is the most certain and lasting power in the universe. Look down at verse six. A voice says, Cry. And I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. I want you to feel the the, the gutsy confidence that Isaiah has here. Remember, he's writing to the people of God who will be in exile, but we're not yet in exile He's writing with an eye toward the future when Yahweh, the God who has bound himself to his people, what he will do then? Now, for Isaiah to say this is to put himself out there. It may not be true. Perhaps God's word would fade. Maybe God's word won't stand forever. And yet see this, this word issued so long ago remains. It goes forward to us together. Even this morning, what seems so permanent, so lasting in our world is so temporary. The great buildings in this country, the worldly ambitions you have for your life, it's all temporary. This exile that the people of God were driven into did not last forever. Whatever it is in your life that you're tempted to believe will, will last forever, if it's of this world, it won't last Don't live your life, your life for what amounts to be nothing more than grass. It will wither like a flower. It will fall. Build your life on what will last not just for a few years, but forever. The word of God. This is the good life. This is the foundation upon which you can build your life. Note this contrast here between men which are like grass and His glory, like the flower and the breath of the Lord which just blows and causes them to fall and wither. The Spirit of the Lord which gives life, notice, also gives death. Isaiah does see grace and judgment at work in our world. These people who are flesh and like grass, they are nothing before the Spirit of God. God's people would be in captivity under a a great power whose glory would fade. But the glory of their God will never fade. It's not the first time they had been under the domination of the world's superpower. And yet, what is the great comfort God gives them? It's not that the word of the Babylonians will have the final say. It is that the word of their God will have the final say. And it's not the word of this nation or any nation, that will have the final say. It is still the word of our God. The nightly news, whatever events out there that would cause the world to panic are no reason for you to panic. The mighty word of the God of Israel was then, and he is now ruling history. He is using world powers for his purposes. No different now. As God opens doors in the most difficult places for his gospel to go forward, for his church to be established, oh, we have such a privilege here to participate, to invest together in what God is doing. We've seen people, unlikely people, come to faith. We've seen people grow in faith. We've seen brothers like Joseph trained up and sent back to Egypt for the good work of the gospel there. There. Believers, trust God's word will not fail. No matter what your eyes see, no matter what your mind tells you, God's word is the surest, it is the most powerful force in the universe. It endures. Such that Isaiah can say this beginning in verse nine. Go on up to a high mountain. O Zion, herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength. O Jerusalem, herald of good news, lift it up. is a proclamation of certain victory when everything around them appeared to be defeat. I mean this really is like the soccer team that you're pulling for in the World Cup being down by an insurmountable number of goals coming out after halftime and saying we're going to win. We're going to win this game. Don't fear what the world and its circumstances tell you. Here is your God. Behold your God. Look at who your God is. It's what you must do in those moments when you struggle to believe. Behold your God. Behold who He is and what He has done. He will win. And He will include you in the spoils of His triumph. Just look at the way God uses His might. The God who rules everything in the universe— will tend to his flock like a shepherd, gathering lambs in his arms, carrying them closely to his bosom, gently leading those with young. Exile will not be God's final word. Gathering his people in will be the final word. Caring for his people. Right now, spiritually, we are exiled people in this world. But we fully expect one day to be gathered under the strong arm of our God. This this language Isaiah uses of the Lord coming to shepherd his people is one of the great expectations of, of Scripture. The prophets expected this. Ezekiel said, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And Jesus, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down. For his sheep. This is the hope of the gospel. God will come in peace to his own because Jesus took judgment on the cross. God is comforting his people with his word in the most dire of circumstances. And why can God do this? Why? Because he is the God who is incomparable. That's the second point. The God who is incomparable. The God who is in. Comparable. We'll see this from verses 12 all the way through 26. As a a local church, we've known, particularly in this past year, what it's been for Afghan brothers and sisters to have their homeland forcibly conquered, to be forced to leave it, to be completely uncertain about their future. I lament this. I lament that there are some now in our body, there are some in the past who have not known when or if they would ever be able to go back to their homeland. What a tragedy. That's exactly what the Israelites would have felt. They would have wondered, are the gods of the Babylonians greater than our God? Could it be that our God is not who he told us that he is? And then beginning here in verse 12, we see God's response. He proclaims his incomparable nature. He know, I want you to notice as we read this all of the way that his people must reckon with the singularity of his power. Let's look down at, at verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? They're questions that that make the the very point of what they assert. If God is God, of course, of course he's done all these things. Of course he's he's unrivaled in his power. He consulted no man. No one has instructed God. The great powers of the world, they, they cannot say that they've marked off the heavens. They've not done this with their hands. They've not held the dust of the earth and weighed it. The mountains in a balance. I want you to notice that Isaiah is making this case from the fact that God alone created the world without help from anyone. Of course, God's people under the the rule of the, the Babylonians, they would have been familiar with their creation story. Their story was one of conflict among the gods. But not with Yahweh. There is no struggle. His people can be sure that because of his kind and remarkable power that their exile is not beyond his power. It's not beyond his control. Notice he asked the same question again in in verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Then again in verse 25, to whom will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. One of the false ideas that so many people, maybe you, believe about God is that God is like us, just a little different, just a little bigger, there to provide just a little help when we need it. That's not what the text says. God is saying repeatedly and blatantly, no one and nothing can compare with him. The fact that God is incomparable in this way proves he alone is worthy of your trust and your worship Just as with God's people then, so so now we are so tempted to put our trust in something less than God. I think this is a great set of questions to walk through in your life. Maybe today, maybe this week. Ask yourself, who compares with God? Who is God's equal? The answer is no one. So what are the idols you've set up in your heart that you you run back to again and again? Is your idol approval? Is it success? Maybe it's your reputation. Thinking about our church, is it your ministry? Is it the way people think about you in ministry? I want you to think about that and compare it to God. Compare it to God. Allow that idol to be exposed Ask God to bring you to repentance. Uh, Ask God to make you see it for the petty, unworthy object of worship that it is. All of our lives are lived in worship. You can't help but worship. You must give glory to something. So if that's the case, what are you worshiping with your life? With your work? In your life, in your job, in your ministry, whose glory are you seeking to make much of? Where are the affections of your heart? What about at home with the family in a social gathering? Whose glory occupies your mind? What are ways that you can strategize to make the glory of the incomparable God known? You know, we can make God's glory known in a moment, but far more often this happens over the long haul as people strategize. People sacrifice faithfully to make God's glory known. Why don't you consider what you can do even through your involvement and membership in this body over the next year, over the next several years, to make the glory of God known. As I was thinking about this. So many of your names came to mind, how you've just done this faithfully for years. You've stayed, you've labored, You haven't quit. I hope it encourages you how God is using what feel like ordinary but faithful labors for his extraordinary ends, for his glory. Another implication of this is that you do not have to fear men more than you fear God. The remedy for the fear of man is to know God more, to know him. Meditate on his glory. Meditate on how incomparable he is. Maybe list out the people you fear, write their names down, write out what you think men might do to you, and then consider how illogical that is in comparison to God. Don't fear people when this is your God and you know how singularly glorious God is. We want to be a people together who are increasingly confident and joyful in God Extolling who God is Loving him For who he is Here is God asserting his incomparability As a part of that He asserts his transcendence That is his utter otherness Beyond everything Nothing is greater than him And he declares this beginning there In verse 15 Verse 15 Surely the nations are like a drop from a bucket. They are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands as fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not fear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth it is And the tempest carries them off like stubble. Did you just hear that drumbeat of God's supremacy, God's sovereignty over everything? He's asserting his greatness over the nations, saying they are like a drop from a bucket in verse 15. There's nothing in verse 17. He asserts his greatness over all the peoples in verse 22. He sits enthroned above, not with, but above the circle of the earth. People are like grasshoppers. Verse 23, we learn he will bring princes to nothing. There could be no stronger assertion of the greatness of God over everything than is given in these verses. His majesty, his dominion is shown to be unlimited. Compared to him, the whole world is nothing. I want you to feel how powerless the people of God would have felt at this moment. The whole world viewed God's people as serving a weak God. It doesn't sound much different from today. And yet this great world empire would be brought to nothing, banished to history. This is why, brothers and sisters, We as Christians do not ultimately boast in our nationalities. Christians are a people from many nations, many backgrounds. Our nations, each one of them, are as nothing before God. What holds us together as Christians is the reconciliation we've received by grace through Jesus to God. The peoples from the nations, the peoples we prayed for even this morning, the people for whom we cross oceans and boundaries to reach, they are the prize of Jesus. You, if you're trusting in him, are his prize. Heaven and earth will be decimated by his word, but he will move heaven and earth for your good. And remarkably, the God who reigns over the nations came to save the nations. That is the other side of the transcendence of God like our friends here, we don't have a God who is simply far off, far away. We have a God who in Jesus Christ has come near. That's why Isaiah began this chapter proclaiming, prepare the way of the Lord. It's why John the Baptist uses the same language to prepare the world for the coming of God's Son in the flesh, the God who rules over all flesh subjected himself to flesh and all that life on earth brings with it, the transcendence and the eminence of God, the God who is overall dwells with and among his people. So if you're talking to a Muslim friend about the gospel or maybe you come here from a Muslim background, I want you to see this in the Old Testament. This prophet Isaiah is pointing forward to this God who will mysteriously come near to his people in all of our brokenness and need. His visitation mysteriously revealed in Jesus was not a deviation from the plan. It was the long expectation of the Old Testament prophets. This is the great comfort that we take in God when like his people who have gone before, we, we can't make sense of what's going on in our lives or in the world. We are confident And our God who faced suffering, who came near, who confronted evil. This God who is over everything, before whom the rulers of the world are as nothing has come near in Jesus. And he allowed himself to be made nothing before the rulers of this earth. The God before whom the nations are as nothing, willingly suffered and died for the nations to save them. Behold your God. Behold your God who who sits on the throne. He does all that he pleases and all that he pleases to do is good. There's no God like our God. There's no God who can contain your joy and your desires. No God with this incomparable kind of power. As Isaiah makes clear there in verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high and see he who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. There are more than several trillion stars in the universe. The incomparable God calls them all by name. Not one is missing. He flung them into space with the power of his word. And if he does not forget stars, you can be sure he will not forget you as his precious child. Isaiah reasons that God is the ruler and the creator of everything, and yet the the message that he's driving home from that is as one person said, that his people are his central concern. This is your God, Christian. And the cross is irrefutable proof he's for you. The cross proves to you that Jesus Christ will receive the reward of his suffering. This is the confidence you need to keep going in the Christian life or in ministry. Your God will ensure the gospel will go forward. He will win the prize for his son. Isaiah here is making use of all the the elements of the created world to give us a sense of the infinite glory and power of our God. And because we believe this because we trust him, we expend ourselves for his glory. We long to see embassies of heaven like this church and more and more planted in this part of the world. Why? Because we want more and more people to see a gospel picture of our God and his glory. He will finish the work and he gives us this privilege of participating in his work. This brings us to Isaiah's final point. Number three, the God who sustains. The God who sustains. Verses 27 through 31. The God who sustains. Look down at verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God There is quite a number of ways you can think of God's transcendent power. Clearly, Isaiah would not have you to think he doesn't care. How can the people of God ever say, my way is hidden from the Lord? How can anyone ever say, my right is disregarded by my God? The everlasting God who never tires knows the plight of his people. Derek Kidner, a Bible teacher, said this, the wrong difference from God's transcendence is that he is too great to care. The right one is that he is too great to fail. In his greatness, the depth of his care is shown. I wonder as a Christian, if you struggle to believe God cares for you. You wonder if he knows what you're walking through in your life right now? I want you to see how at pains Isaiah is to say to you, your way is not hidden. He sees. He knows. He's sovereignly ruling it for your good. He will bring justice. God always has his people exactly where he wants us. He has you where he has you. For infinitely wise reasons, you can trust him. Isaiah closes here with the assurance God gives himself to the weak. The the God there in in verse 28 who does not grow weary gives strength, verse 29, to the faint, to the weary, the youth, the very ones who epitomize what it is to have energy and strength, the ones who seem to be synonymous with life, they grow weary, they grow tired, young men stumble, they fall, and yet not those who wait and hope for the Lord. God gives to them strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. This God will not fail. He's not going to fail you. He did not fail his people then who clung to him and his word for their hope and their future. He will not fail those of us who cling to his word now for all the promises that he's made that we're trusting for our future. In Jesus all of them are yes. Waiting in trust and expectant hope in God is a perfectly logical thing to do in this world because this is God's world. The the word which brought this world into existence sustains it, and God's word will bring this world to the place he has purposed for it. In a way that God's beleaguered Tired, weak people could have never expected. Their God, who made promises, promises, fulfilled every one of them. In an out-of-the-way place, unnoticed by the world, the glory of the Lord was revealed. As the everlasting God through whom the world was made became the baby born to Mary and to Joseph and who would go on to die a scandalous death on the cross. By his very word, God sustained his people until he became one of his people. And he will sustain you. He will build his church until that day when he appears no longer in scandal, but in glory. And you can trust God, this God with everything in your life. And as you trust him, And his promises. You will find that even though life in this fallen world is hard. You will see. That as you behold your God. You will run and you will not be weary. You will walk. You will not faint.